guess that's my cue. Well, my name is Mike. I am uh, filling in for Scott. I'm a little shorter than he is. Um, but uh, he is gone for some training time this weekend, and I am privileged that uh, he asked me to fill in this spot for him today, and I count it in a real honor uh, to be here. So in regards to Father's Day, for those of you who are dads, uh, just let me ask you the question. What are some things that makes it a good Father's Day for you? This is interactive here. It's supposed to be anyway. <laughs> What's a good Father's Day for you? What's some things that make it a good Father's Day? What's that? Being with your family. Being with your family. Absolutely. Yes. A picnic lunch by the side of the water. All right. Calls from your kids when they check in. Yes, I just got a text from my daughter. Sweet deal. I don't know when I got it, but I noticed it just now. Some, something else. I was putting my phone on silent and saw that it was there. What else? New clothes from your kids. Gifts, okay, gifts. Okay, take those same things that you just mentioned and make this a great Father's Day for him. We can all do that, can't we? We can't buy him new clothes, but we can give him of ourself. You can check in with him, spend some time with him. That's what makes it a great Father's Day for him. Regardless of where we are with our earthly dads, we know that we have a Heavenly Father. Or we can be reminded that we have a Heavenly Father who cares incredibly more than any human being ever could who loves us and wants to redeem us for himself. Okay, so let me start off just a few questions as we work into this passage. A few weeks ago, Pastor Scott called me and said, would you be willing to fill in for me on Father's Day? I said, sure, it'd be an honor to preach for you. And then he said, I want you to do Luke 22, verses 15 to like 46. Kidding me. I already said yes, so there was no backing out. And I thought, okay, so next week we get here to church, and he's got another huge section of Scripture. Good, I'll see how he does it. Well, he cuts it in half and does the second half the next week, and he's not going to give me that one. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to be in this for a while. So let me ask you a few questions to get started. Mount Everest was discovered in 1852 by Ratna Sikdar from India. Before that, what was the tallest mountain in the world? No, it was Mount Everest. It still hadn't been discovered yet. Sorry, that was a trick question. Okay, let me give you another one. All right. A truck driver is going down a one-way street. This is for our brother Dave back there. A truck driver is going down the wrong, the, the one-way street the wrong way, and he passes 10 cops without being caught. How'd that happen? He was walking. All right. Okay, let's take another one here. How can you drop a raw egg on a concrete floor without cracking it? Casey, you know this one. Concrete floors are hard to crack, especially with raw eggs. Okay. Did you get it? All right. Trick questions. These are all trick questions. And I don't have an advancer, so you're going to have to advance the slides for me, somebody. 
trick question is kind of, how do you answer a trick question? And that's kind of the, the thought of where we're headed with this today. Because Jesus was in, inundated with trick questions from those people that wanted to antagonize him. A trick question is it's not really as obvious as it may seem. A trick question, the intention is to deceive just by the way the question is asked. And truth isn't really being sought for. It's just a disguise for treachery and entrapment. Pastor Scott has been teaching us the past number of weeks about this growing divergence between the Jewish leaders and his ministry and Jesus' kingdom work and the way that the Jewish leaders had been trying to take things is growing farther and farther apart. And as the closer Jesus comes to the cross, the more this is beginning to come to a head. There's a widening gap. Now, there were a few times that he was approached by some Jewish leaders that were sincere. I'm sure that was refreshing. Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, he talks to him about being born again and how can you enter the kingdom of God. And there was a serious interchange about how this... Nicodemus just couldn't get his head around it, but he was serious when he asked the question. Another synagogue official, a guy named Jairus, Asked Jesus one time, my daughter is sick to the point of death, and I know you can heal her, would you come? In Mark chapter 5, Jairus comes and pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter, and he does. So there's some genuine inquiry that is made of Jesus by some of these religious leaders. There's a few others, but most of the time, these religious leaders, all they wanted to do was try to nail Jesus and to trick him and to trap him and to get him out of the way. They couldn't run Jesus off. He was here to stay. They couldn't ignore him because he taught us one having authority. He, he, he just couldn't, they just couldn't blatantly get rid of him because he was growing in popularity. I know. Let's catch him in his words. Let's get tricky. Let's, let's bring a lawyer in here. Now, if there's any lawyers present, I'm not trying to put down being a lawyer or a paralegal or anybody. That's just the way it was in those days. I'm glad things are different nowadays. So they set up trick questions. These guys did to try to trick Jesus in something that he said. There was an underlying sense of deceitfulness from the way that Jesus responded, though. We can learn how we might be able to respond to trick questions. Sometimes I feel at home like I'm being asked a trick question. Do you want... To take out the garbage. Is that an inquiry about what I want? Or what I'm willing to do? You know the right answer, don't you, Denny? Yeah, yes, ma'am. Okay, no, it's ma'am. So, we understand that. But I'm not talking about lighthearted conversations at home. I'm talking about serious stuff. When you're really genuinely finally worked up enough courage to share your faith or or share something about Jesus and somebody comes back and says, oh yeah, what about? And you're just feeling like you're trapped and you're kind of under pressure. Next time, I'm not going to say nothing. And here are some some opportunities Jesus gives gives to us so that we might be equipped to go forward and be able to speak truth in an environment that sometimes is is not friendly toward the truth but somewhat hostile. In the past, we've had services, we've had people get up and read scripture. This is 15 to 46. So we're going to, I'm going to read it as I go through this section. The first one, the first point in our outline that Jesus gives us is number one, discern the truth. This is uh, verses 15 to 22. And we're going to talk about this and then we'll come back and, and take it apart here. 
the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Now, if we back up to where Pastor Scott's been leading us, these guys are frustrated. In fact, we're going to talk about Pharisees. We're not going to talk about Sadducees. And in this section, we're going to hear about the Herodians, three major groups of people. And especially the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were more of the religious leaders. And the Herodians, they weren't as religious, but they had some political agendas. But I never could get this, get it straight. Pharisees and Sadducees, how to tell them apart? Well, something that helped, this helped me to figure it out. The Pharisees were kind of the conservative side of their religious group, and they really focused on the letter of the law, do all the rules of God and get it right. They were just very legalistic about it, and they always wanted to be fair, you see. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were a little bit more on the liberal side. They didn't believe, I mean, they were religious, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the afterlife. So they were sad, you see. And that's how I can tell the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. But they were together. That What finally brought them together was this Jesus guy, we got to get rid of him. So they came together. Now, the Herodians were not religious at all. They were more of the political kind. And if you ever want to distract the conversation from getting to the heart of the issue spiritually, bring up politics. You know what I'm talking about, especially during this current time in our election cycle that we're coming up. So the Herodians are a part of the scene here. Let's step into the passage here. The Pharisees are trying to entangle Jesus in his words. If we can just trap him, just trick him, we can nail him, shame him, and get rid of him. Verse 16 of Matthew 22. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, don't you note the sincerity coming through there? Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Isn't that just dripping with sincerity there? It's just You can just tell it coming through there. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? (laughs) So they've asked the question. Now these are the Herodians. These are the ones that are into politics. Standing right beside the Pharisees. They're fair, you see. They want the letter of the law. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Because we know we're getting ripped off by the tax collectors. So if he says yes to pay taxes and the poor people are having to pay taxes, think, well, he's a bum for paying your taxes. But if you don't pay your taxes and take the side of the poor people, then you're making the Herodians and the government mad at you. So either way, we've got you. We'll see how Jesus gets got here. Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites Uh, show me a coin for the tax they brought to him a denarius and jesus said to them whose likeness and inscription is this they said caesar's and then he said therefore render to caesar the things that are caesar's and to god the things that are god's now the herodians they're on the side of the government they are in good with that In fact, many of them knew the tax collectors and they could get by without some of the exorbitant stuff. Maybe some of them never even paid taxes. 
they had enough government loopholes that they could get out of all this stuff. Now, I'm not saying we need to overpay the government. Believe me, they waste enough of it as it is. But here he's saying, hey, if you've got to pay taxes, pay taxes. My dad said, I always like, I like paying taxes. That means you're earning money. So he paid his fair share. But then the Herodians, who were neither fair to the government, nor was their heart right with God, Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. By the way, you're not. And render unto God the things that are God's. What did the Herodians have that God wanted? Another discussion question here. The heart. Exactly. They were just in it for the politics. But Jesus says, God wants your heart. God can take anybody and change them. God can take anyone, regardless of their political alignment, and invade their heart and bring the grace of God in there and change that person. He wanted their heart. Render unto things, Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. Jesus was cutting through the chase here and discerning the truth. What did these Herodians, what did these Pharisees need to hear the most of? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Something that they were probably doing neither of. The truth. Take time to pray and respond and trust in God. They, they, they weren't interested in spiritual things, so they asked a political question. Jesus responded right to the heart. To speak, they discerned the truth. And in conversations where you find yourself a trick, trick question like this, bring it back and discern the truth. In other words, do the right thing the right way. Do the right thing the right way. Most of you in here are younger than me. There's a few of you that might have me beat by a year or two. But if you ever have a chance to walk by my tombstone, I hope you'll find engraved there. Don't forget this, Marilyn. I want it engraved. Do the right thing the right way. Well, that may be too many lines or spaces, however that works. But that's what I want on there. It's a reminder. Live life that way. Do the right thing the right way. Discern the truth and speak right into the truth. Let the chips fall where they may. That's what he did. In fact, if you look at verse 22, when they heard this, they marveled. And they left him and went away. I love that word marveled. It didn't say that the Herodians and the disciples of the Pharisees were frustrated or mad. They just marveled. Maybe some of them at that point, when Jesus discerned the truth and spoke to it, maybe some of them embraced Christ. Maybe some of them came to faith. You might look at the people that are running for office nowadays. Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump and a few others. And you might think, ever see them coming to faith in Christ? That'll be the day. That'd be a great day, wouldn't it? Let's let them marvel at the truth. You, we can speak the truth. Discern the truth and speak to it. Do the right thing the right way. Set the course yourself. Well, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did Don't use other people as an excuse or as an example why I don't. I need to speak the truth and do the right thing the right way. And that's what Jesus taught us in this particular passage. I just got my notes mixed up. It's here somewhere. 
Hang on. I usually have these things memorized. Okay, number two. Discern the heart. I always have a fear that this is going to happen. One, two, three, four. Okay. There it is. Discern the heart in verses 23 to 33. The same day, Sadducees came to him. Sort of like the encounter with the Pharisees and the Herodians wasn't enough. The same day, sort of like you walk in, take a number, and you're going to get waited on. There you go. The same day, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. They're sad, you see. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, now stop there for just a moment. We need a little backstory here. The law of Moses was a man and a woman are married, and if they have no children and he dies, then his name is childless. And so the man's brother... The deceased brother is to step up, unite with her, and bear children in the deceased brother's name. That was the law, so that the name could continue. Sounds kind of weird in our culture, but that's the way that the law was prescribed. And so the brother is to bear children in the name of his deceased brother. So that was that, and they said the law of Moses. Now they're pitching the question. The sad, you see, is did not believe in the resurrection, the afterlife, miracles, or angels. And they pitched the question to Jesus. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven Whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. Bow! Got you with another quick trick question. How are you going to wiggle out of that one, Jesus? Thinking that, okay, in the resurrection, we've all had her. How are you going to fit this together? You show up to heaven. She walks into heaven's gates, and there's seven guys there. Who is she going to go up to and say, oh, dear? Or is she just going to go, oh, dear? And so they got, they were catching it wrong. And it's very interesting. Look at Jesus' response in verse 29. <laughs> you are wrong because you neither you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You're wrong at what? It was a question they asked him. These guys didn't believe in the resurrection. What are you asking? Who's going to be whose spouse in the resurrection? You're, you're, you missed it in the first place. You were wrong for denying the resurrection and the supernatural. Oh, we miss out so much. You are you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. These guys were religious. They did all the religious stuff. They did all the goodwill. They did all this religion. And yet they missed a relationship with God. That's what God desires more than anything else is a relationship. He wants to know you personally. 
It's not about all the religious stuff. In fact, oftentimes, when I'm sharing my faith with people, I'll say, I, I don't like religion. They'll go, huh? No, religion. In fact, I don't think Jesus liked religion either. Oh. No, not religion. It's the relationship that God wants. He doesn't want all of our stuff. He wants my heart. And so Jesus needed to discern the heart of the people that were asking the question. And the Sadducees, they could care less about the resurrection. They didn't even believe in it. What are they doing asking questions about this? It was a trick question. They were asking questions about something they didn't even believe in. They were missing a relationship with God. They never experienced the power of God. And Jesus was passionate. Maybe you guys could experience that. Having a relationship with God. That's a foreign concept to people even today. To have a personal relationship. A dialogue with God. Where I talk and God actually listens and hears. And there's a response. Now, I've never heard God out loud. Mike, take out the garbage. You and Marilyn are... I'm Marilyn and I are both telling you. Never happened out loud. But there's that sense in which God and I have to interact on a spiritual level. And so in my heart, there is that dialogue at times that needs to take place. And there's a personal relationship. God has done uh, work at changing issues in me. He's still got more to change. But there's still a work he does because he lives on the inside and still doing that. And the Sadducees didn't have that. They had no hope of the afterlife because they wrote it off. They were missing this relationship with God. Scripture can change minds. So Jesus goes on to explain, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Marilyn and I have had lots of discussions about this passage. And then I had to preach on it. And I keep telling her, I want to be roommates in heaven with you, dear, if you just save me a spot. And then when she saw the passage that Scott had assigned to me, she just had to laugh over this. But they're like angels in heaven. Angels aren't interested in who's your roommate. What do angels do? Don't say play harps and sit on clouds. (laughs) Angels worship God. Angels enjoy the presence of God. In fact, the word angelos in the Greek means messenger. They are messengers. They they do the bidding of God. They they, they just tickle to serve Him. And so that's what we're going to be like. We're just going to be tickled to serve Him. And we're going to be worshiping him in his presence. Yes, I'll recognize Marilyn. She'll recognize me. I'm sure I'll be a lot thinner and younger and have more hair and it won't be white. Maybe not, but at least she'll recognize me. But who cares about the physical aspect of it? Yes, there will be a physical aspect in the resurrection and all this, but the Sadducees, they missed the point altogether. And Jesus here was trying to discern their heart. And speak to the issue of their heart that was at stake. He wasn't trying to judge them. He just said, you're wrong. Not so much in the statement that you make, but in the question that you ask and the way that you ask it. And he goes on to say in verse 31, as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what uh, what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Who is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Another question. Who are they? 
Somebody help me out here. I know the answer. I'm misopening. What's that? Well, in a sense, yes. Okay. Someone in the first service said they're dead people. And they're right. Okay. They're physically dead. But if God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, then they're alive, right? Their bodies may have stopped. Like I loved it. At the last church that I was a pastor of, our youth pastor's boy was really struggling with life and death. And when an older person had passed away in our congregation, they had our, 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 youth, our associate pastor had to explain to the little boy what happened. And his little boy says, oh, okay, so his body just stopped. That's a great explanation. The person didn't die, but their body quit. All right, and the kid got it. He was going on with that. Well, that's what he's talking about here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their body just stopped. But they're alive. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. There is an afterlife. There is hope for eternity. There will be a a resurrection. I'm sure he was saying, read your Bibles to them. At this response, they were dumbfounded and without response. And when the crowds heard it, they were astounded at his teaching. But Jesus here was trying to discern their heart. Jesus saw their heart and spoke to the issue of their heart. When faced with a trick or a difficult question, we speak to the heart of the issue. What will you do with Jesus? That's the most important thing. And so sometimes when I get in conversations with people, the conversation goes way out in left field. And let's just boil it down. Okay, I won't go there, but I'm thinking of an illustration here. But Okay, knitting and tapestry and... Not knitting and tapestry, but, but tapestry and quilt making. Anybody here a quilt maker? One. Okay, well, you're going to have to use your imagination, everybody else. <laughs> Even aside from quilt making, a tapestry. When there's a tapestry made, they have all kinds of colored threads that go, and by the time they put it together, it's this fantastic, beautiful picture. On the back side, all the little pieces are tied together and stuck together, and it looks kind of weird back there. But on the front side... All of these are blended together like that. Make this beautiful picture. Well, in my Bible, there are 66 books. And if you could boil it down and just take it apart like a gigantic tapestry, there's four basic colors of threads that weave the tapestry of the Scripture. And these are woven throughout all of the pages of the Bible. Number one, God loves you and offers abundance for everyone. Now, I'm not talking abundance like if you go over to Mill Bay and hit a big, okay? But abundance is something that's deep within your heart. God loves you (laughs) and offers abundance for all of us. And many times the reason that we're not experiencing that abundance of that love is because of the second thread in that tapestry that mankind is basically sinful and separated from God. And that blocks that abundance from coming through. And that blinds our eyes to the love that he's trying to show to us. God loves us and offers us abundant life. Number two, we're mankind is sinful and separated from God. And we're hopelessly stuck if that's the only two threads in the tapestry. But the third thread, a golden thread, is that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for my sin. 
Jesus is God's only provision for man's sin. That is shredded throughout, prophetically throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and it's vividly portrayed in the pages of the New Testament. Satan himself knows those three, but that doesn't make him a child of God. The fourth, thre- the fourth thread has to weave its way in amongst all of these other ones, and we must individually receive Christ as our personal Savior. And then we can know with love and abundance in our life. It doesn't matter where church you go to. It doesn't matter what family you've come from. It doesn't matter your economic status or your job or your age. It's individually. God loves us. We're sinful and separated. Jesus died to pay the penalty. And I have to individually come before Christ and accept him as my Savior and Lord. Then I can begin to experience that love and joy in my life. Speak to the heart of the issue. Discern the truth. Discern the heart now. Number three, speak biblical. That worked out pretty good. When it did something, don't change it. Okay. Speak, speak biblical truth, verses 34 to 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. <clears throat> now they were stumped. They were frustrated. Nobody seems to be able to stop or trap Jesus. Now these trick questions. I know, verse 35. Let's get a lawyer. We'll send him in there. He'll trick him up. and We'll we'll ask him a a question to test him. Now, the test wasn't just pass or fail. It was a trick question. We know that from right out the start. Verse 36. Here we go. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, understand that God on Mount Sinai gave to Moses how many commandments? Ten. I can, I can count that on both hands. Pastor Scott has to use a, a foot to complete his ten because he's missing one of his thumbs. But, okay, ten commandments. We can do this. But the, the religious leaders, the, 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 uh, the rabbis in those days, had invented or made up 613 laws to enforce the ten commandments. In other words, if you kept all 613 meticulously then that means you wouldn't violate the Ten Commandments. So now, instead of ten, they had 613. If you were guilty of those, you were in big trouble. And so the lawyer comes along, which of these laws, which of those 613 is the greatest commandment? Well, how are you going to pick one? How are you going to pick one law? Because you pick one, you leave out 612, now you're in trouble. Jesus ignores the 613, He even ignores the details of the ten, and he brings it right down to the barest essence. He's speaking biblical truth. He says in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets on these two commandments love god love your neighbor and all the law and prophets hang on those two interesting the first if you look up at 10 commandments in exodus 20 the first four commandments have to do with loving god don't use his name in vain and have no other idols before you all of those first four have to do with loving god the second section Six of the remaining six have to do with loving your neighbor, not coveting, not bearing false witness, and all of those. 
Love God, love your neighbor. He spoke, he, he zeroed it right down. He spoke biblical truth. He wasn't trying to pick out one of the 613 and figure out which was his favorite one from there. He didn't even go to the Ten Commandments and say, well, I'll pick one of those. Because either way, they nailed him to the wall. What about the rest of them? Aren't they important? Jesus took a broad stroke and says, love God, love your neighbor. Upon those two, everything else hangs if you'll just do those two. Not just, I don't want to make it sound simple, but many times in speaking biblical truth, we simplify the complex. What is most important? Speak the biblical truth. What is, this is the great response anytime. And what I try to do is when I'm doing that, once I've said that, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Ask them, how are you doing in that department? You don't ask it with an air of superiority. You're genuinely concerned about the heart of the person. And if you speak to biblical truth, how, how are you doing in that area or those areas? And so you come alongside as a friend. They, they may have meant it as a trick. They may have meant it as a way to, to get at you. And there have been times where I've shared this with people before, and they come across very... Um, Maybe combative, not combative, but uh, contrary at the beginning. But if you let, if you follow Jesus' response for trick questions here, you slide in there with compassion and you speak the biblical truth. Many times the people will be soft-hearted as they do. Number four, ask questions of the heart. Now there's a change in this. Notice what happens in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So I can imagine what's happened is that the Pharisees and their disciples and their rhodiums tried this trick. Ah, we got him. Oh, man, we failed on that one. So the same day, Sadducees come up, and we're going to try to get together. We got one, we'll trick him. And they, oh, man, that didn't work either. So the Pharisees come back and try it again. That doesn't work. So they go off, and they're kind of having this huddle. What are we going to do? How are we going to get this guy? How is it going to work? And they're over in the kind of this holy huddle, and Jesus walks up. I got a question. And here's his question. Got to find it. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So there's kind of like two questions there. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, first of all, let's talk about the concept of the sun. When, when I was growing up in Wenatchee, my dad was a building contractor. And his only advertising was word of mouth. K.R. Moore Construction, and then the phone number was on the side of both doors of his truck, driving around town. So when I got to be 16 years old, I started driving. I could drive to work in my dad's truck, and it was kind of cool. Well, on Friday night, when we'd go down to the Arctic Circle there in Wenatchee for a 19-cent hamburger. Anybody ever been to the Arctic Circle in Wenatchee for a 19-cent hamburger? All right. few of you old people in there. Good deal. And then we'd go. We'd have, oh, I don't know, four or five or six of us, some of us in the cab, some of them in the bed of the truck. You could do that in those days. We'd go up to, um, what's that place, Skyline Drive. 
You know about Skyline Drive, dear Roger? What were you doing up there? <laughs> Danny, what were you doing up there? Skyline Drive, that's kind of where that make out point. They go up there and they park the car in Nicolette out of Wenatchee Valley. Well, we go up there in my dad's truck with the candy, with a uh, Polaroid camera. Through the car windows. Whoa, we made some people mighty irritated. We all pile back in the truck, room when we take off, spit up a little gravel now and again. So Saturday morning, my dad gets a phone call. Huh? Skyline Drive? I wasn't up there. It was. Bye. He stalks to me. What was my truck doing up on Skyline Drive last night? <laughs> my dad said, look, number one, your last name is Moore. Remember that. There's honor in that name. Number two, you're driving my truck with my name on phone number on it. <laughs> son of. I needed to live like I was the son of K.R. Moore. I had to live to that level. And so culturally in those days, to be the son of didn't just mean who was your dad. It was much greater and much grander than that. It had to do with equal to. It had to do with the same as or a continuation of. I was a continuation of my dad's name. And so in that process, they asked the question, Jesus asked the question, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Who is he equal to? Who is he a continuation of? And then the word Christ. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The word Christ has to do with, it's the Greek word for anointed one. So he's the anointed one that God would send. They all knew about the Christ. That was coming. They didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. But they all knew that he was, that Christ was coming. They expected it to happen. The Hebrew term for son, I mean for Christ, is Messiah. So Hebrew, uh, uh, Messiah, Christ, the same term, just different languages. So if you see Messiah, see Christ, it's the same thing. It means anointed one with God. Who is Christ equal to? Who is he the same as? Who is he a continuation of? They said the son of David. Then he said to them, How then is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If David, if Jesus is the Christ is just a continuation of David, but he's also called Lord. How is that so? How can David's son be David's Lord? How can one equal with David be greater than him? Could Jesus be greater than David? Could Jesus be Messiah or Christ? This spoke to the heart. Jesus challenged people to deal with Jesus and his provision for salvation and the lordship of their life. No one, verse 46, no one was able to answer him. Not a word from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's go to the take it home, which is the next one up there. In your, in your bulletin, your notes, so you got four little points. Take it home. I want us to take this thing home a little bit. Number one, I think it's important as we look at this, pray about your response, your responses. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. So as you're asked some of these questions, 
Don't answer right away. First, send it upward. Wait for a response. And sometimes when Marilyn asks me a question and I'm thinking about it, she thinks I'm ignoring her. Because there's nothing. I mean, she might think I'm in a zone where there's not even any thoughts going on. But I have to tell, she's taught me to tell her, okay, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm not ignoring you. So once I'm go, but you pray about it. You send it upward. Then the second one, number two, number two, chikpow, ponder your responses. Now, after I send it upward, I need to be thinking about it. My dad used to always tell me, Make sure your brain is in gear before. Put your mouth. Your dad said the same thing, didn't he? All right. But think about it. But first, I got to send it upward. Then I got to run around inside of there a little bit and think about it. Folks, I have still got a long ways to go in working on that one. Number three, place your responses under God. There are times where I've sent it upward. I've thought about it. And the thing that comes to my mind to say is like, that's kind of out of character for me. Sometimes when I go to the bank and I ask the teller, how you doing? And I say, oh, I'm having a lousy day. Send it upward. Think about it. Put it under God. I want to pray for you. Can I pray right now? There's nobody in line. Can I pray for you right now? Okay. We just bow right there at the teller's window and pray for him, and then we're done. Amen. Thank you. Here's my transaction. We're out of there. But sometimes that's not comfortable for me to sit there and pray for somebody in a bank. Now, if you're a long line at, at Safeway, don't try that because you're going to make everybody mad. <laughs> that ever happened, Eric, when you worked at Safeway? Nobody ever stopped and prayed for you, did they? There. Well, we need to pray for you anyway, bud. But. Place your response under God. Say, God, I'm going to fire this one out there. Please take it and do something with it. We want you to be honored. And then number four, the last one, promote faith in Jesus. What about you? Is today your day? And so this is where you're, you're kind of bringing the conversation or the interaction to a close, and you want to promote faith in Jesus. What about you? Does this make sense? Ask those kinds of questions. Is this your day? Is today your day? Let me ask you that question. It, it, it's like there's this great big... Last fall, we went to the Grand Canyon, Marilyn and I did. And it's like God's on one side and I'm on the other. Even Evil Knievel couldn't get across the Snake River Canyon on a motorcycle with a rocket on the back. How am I going to get across the Grand Canyon? My sin has created such a gulf between God and me, I can't get across it. I'd be stupid to try to jump off the edge, hoping I could land on the other side. Yet so many times people try to get to God by all their human efforts, and it doesn't happen. But God has built a bridge across that chasm. He's laid the cross that his son was crucified on across that canyon. By paying for all of my sins through the blood that he shed on the cross. And all I got to do is, by faith, embrace Christ. By faith, ask him to take me safely over. It's so simple. We miss it. What about you?
I know many of you may have already come to faith in Christ and have embraced Him, and you're on your faith journey right now. There may be here some today that that are standing on the edge of that gulf, or maybe just realize for the first time there is that big gulf. Today you can walk over that bridge that God's constructed with the blood of His Son. You can accept Christ today. Yeah! He can become your Savior. He can become the one that forgives your sins and enters your life and gives you the power to experience this love and abundance like you've never realized before. So as I close in prayer, I'm going to give you that opportunity. This may not be for everyone here, but for those today that have never yet embraced Christ and trusted him as our Savior, um, I'm going to give you that chance right now. And then we'll conclude our service with some other things as we have our response time at the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there, your word is clear, and I appreciate how Jesus is able to cut to the chase on all these trick questions. And I do pray, God, that if there's anyone here in this room that has not yet embraced Jesus, trusted him with their soul for eternity, you'd help them to do so. Dear friend, if that's you, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, it's not the words that you say so much as it is the attitude of your heart. So as I pray out loud, if these words reflect the attitude of your heart, you can just simply relate them back to God. It's the sincerity that he hears, not your words. Dear God, I acknowledge I have sinned and I'm far from you. I want to be close. I believe that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. I ask him into my heart right now. I ask him to forgive all my sins. Come in. Make me clean. Make me brand new. Begin to make me the kind of person you want me to be. Thank you for coming in. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me today, God heard that. He would have entered your heart and will begin that process. And I just encourage you to live for him and to to, uh, allow him to make you the kind of a person he wants you to be. I'm just going to kind of hang around afterwards. If you want to talk to me more about that, I'm going to just be kind of around here a little bit afterwards. Come and let me know that that's... uh, decision that you made i'd love to hear about that and pray with you over that um so glenn take us to the rest of our closing time would you please mike thank you so much um for challenging my heart um most of you guys know uh we have some time to respond now i'm going to pass these there's one right under you mike actually we're going to pass these around this a chance for all of us to give back to god just to recognize that he's the one who gives us Everything, if this is your church home, or even if you just feel led to give, that's okay. Uh, this is the time to do that. Um, we, res- we love to respond as a families, and the kids are, are just going to come in, and they can sing with us, and they can see us responding to God and uh, worshiping, and, and, uh, and also uh, we have communion. So if this is new to you, it's, uh, it's okay. Uh, you don't have to be weirded out. It's in the back. We had some issues with coffee pots breaking, breaking circuit breakers and things, so it's in a weird spot, but it's back there. The bread that represents his body that was crushed so we can get across that chasm.
back to God, back to home where we belong. And the, and the juice um, that represents his blood that was spilled to wash us from our, 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 our disease of sin. Um, so when your hearts are ready, we're going to sing a couple songs. You can give. You can pray with your families. You can hit your knees. You can go back to the communion table. Uh, we've got a few songs to sing. Uh, let's just respond in our hearts to God. And I think um, I appreciate, Mike, your, 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 your ability to give us some practical things we can do. Um, but I really appreciate that you pointed us to Christ. Because how many times in my marriage or whenever, and I'm like, I'm just going to do it. And, uh, and I want to be clever like Jesus. But I know uh, that I can just let him be clever for me sometimes is important. So please let Jesus take your heart.